Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. to episode 143 of Historically Thinking. On October 30th, 1872, the wife of presidential candidate Horace Greeley died. On November 6th, Greeley lost in a landslide to President Ulysses S. Grant, winning only six out of 37 states in the Electoral College. By November 13th, Greeley had entered into an asylum for the treating of mental and nervous disorders, where he died just a few weeks later on November 29th. Yet this last month of his life was probably not the most eventful of Greeley's life. For decades, as founder and editor of the New York Tribune, known throughout the United States, Greeley was in many ways one of America's first celebrities, famous for simply being Horace Greeley. But he was also, especially in his own eyes, a species of public intellectual, doing his often erratic thinking in full view of his public. And that was a public of tens of tens of thousands for whom the words of Horace Greeley were oracular in their import, if not lack of clarity, words which at times could shape public events. How those words did or did not shape events and how Greeley succeeded and failed in his intellectual mission is at the heart of the arguments marshaled by James Lumberg in his book, Horace Greeley, Print, Politics, and the Failure of American Nationhood. James M. Lumberg is the director of the undergraduate program in history and an assistant professor of the practice at the University of Notre Dame. Jake Lundberg, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. So if you had to give a bio of Horace Greeley for a desktop encyclopedia, if such a thing existed anymore, um, what would it be? Just start us off uh, for those who've never heard of him or just heard the name. Sure, sure. Well, I'll try to fight off the uh, the nostalgia from my, my world book and my Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> um, but uh, but Horace Greeley was was the most visible and influential newspaper figure in the United States in the 19th century, certainly up until Hearst and Pulitzer later in the century. Um, he was very much a, a self-made man who had really come from, from nothing, poverty of the manly American sort, as he liked to call it. Um, he made his name with the newspaper that he founded and went on to edit until his death, the, the New York Tribune. Um, the Tribune was never the most popular or widely circulating newspaper in New York, um, but it was really singular in that it had a weekly edition that, that, as you said in your intro, reached tens of thousands of people um, across the northern United States. Uh, and to those readers, Greeley was this oracular figure. It was said that, um, that farmers and tradesmen would have three things in their homes that they would read, their Bible, their Shakespeare, um, and, and their Tribune. Um, and, and the Tribune was, was really a remarkable sort of clearinghouse of, of ideas and information. Um, so, so beyond you know, news and opinion, especially political news and opinion, it was a paper that tapped into the reformist ethos of the day. Um, it was broadly anti-slavery. Uh, it had what we might now call culture coverage with book reviews, but it also was full of practical information about things like farming and soil. Um, and, and so from this platform, Greeley really became a, a central figure in the political upheavals of the mid-19th century. Uh, in the 1850s, he's one of the architects of the new political coalition that became 
the Republican Party. Um, during the Civil War, he was at the center of a number of tangles with the Lincoln administration and the military over the handling over the, of, of the war. Um, and then during Reconstruction and after the war, he became a, a voice in favor of reconciliation and reunion between the North and the South, which would turn into um, the platform for this kind of disastrous presidential run that you mentioned um, against Ulysses S. Grant uh, in 1872. So it's really quite a life. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it all together. So what is what is your argument that you're pursuing in the book? Brief the sort of fifty story elevator ride argument. Since uh, historians, we can't really express ourselves. Our elevator pitch isn't a three story building pitch. It's more like sure, a, a fifty sure. story pitch. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I, my my argument I think works on on two levels. Uh, one uh, on the level of Greeley himself. I think that 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 he is best understood as a figure who is embedded in the struggle over uh, the nature and definition of American nationhood in the 19th century. So this includes his own work and his belief that journalism or what he called intelligence had the power to create a national community and resolve the inherent kind of tensions and problems of American American nationhood. Uh, and it also encompasses Greeley's status as a, a kind of representative celebrity figure who was kind of awkwardly poised between being a national symbol um, and, and a regional one. Uh, and this, this kind of gets to the second level of the argument, which is that Greeley's failures to resolve these tensions and problems of American nationhood through journalism point to a larger failure of American nationhood in the 19th century. So in other words, Greeley's limits speak to the broader limits and perhaps the impossibility of a coherent American nationhood in the 19th century. So you know, Greeley fails because the nation can't be defined. Uh, it, it can't be embodied. It can't be imagined or printed into into coherence mm -hmm. and i think this is we'll get to this at the towards the end of our conversation but as you know reading it um i'm thinking of the limitations of 19th century nationalism broadly um, both in yeah. europe and also the sure. united states latin america and, you know wherever else um so you credit i think that david blight your doctoral advisor at yale for mm -hmm. saying to you in a very blighting way greeley is important very oracular yes. itself um, is that yeah. where you're very? Is that where you became interested in Greeley? Well, sort of. I, I, I became interested in Greeley while I was reading for my comprehensive exams for for mm -hmm. David Blight in graduate school, um, and I was reading uh, Daniel Walker Howe's book, the the political yeah. culture of the American Whigs, which has this just half chapter about Greeley, and yeah, right. I was totally fascinated by this bizarre character. He's a newspaper man, he's part intellectual, part politician, part celebrity, uh, you know, and it seemed like there really wasn't all that much out there about him. Uh, now, I wasn't the only one to see this, uh, and there were some books that did come out while I was working on this project, uh, but that work didn't, didn't quite get at what I was most interested in, which was the, the kind of print journalism angle. Mm -hmm. um, I had been very interested in that going back to college. I, I edited a, a, a newspaper in college. Mm -hmm. um, and I also was very taken um, with Benedict Anderson's book about nationalism, uh, mm -hmm. Imagine Communities. Mm -hmm. And there, Anderson talks about newspapers as, as a kind of key cultural infrastructure in the making of modern nations, which I thought was just a very cool conceptual idea. Um, mm -hmm. And then later on, I read Richard John's book about the Postal Service in colonial North America and the early United States. And that book showed me that 
there was some real history to Anderson's idea. Going all the way back to the early Republic, people had really thought about news and communication as being critical to the project of the making uh, of making the nation yeah. as a whole. Yeah. And so I guess Greeley just kind of pressed a lot of buttons for me in, in that he fit into a lot of stuff that I'd already been thinking about and really interested in. Mm -hmm. And, and, and as we'll see, I think that you also are showing some of the limitations to Anderson's, at least the way that newspapers could create an imagination. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Greeley arrives in New York in 1831. Is that is that right? Um, that's right. Yes. How, how does one become a journalist in 1831? Because one thing that's clear reading it is, is Greeley is such a transitional figure between a Benjamin yeah. Franklin style uh, yeah. printer and the modern conception of, 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 of a journalist. How, yeah. how did he do it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you mentioned Franklin. Um, mostly the path into journalism in 1831 still went through the printing trade. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and even though this would change as newspapers, especially newspapers in big cities, became larger scale enterprises, most people in the business were printers um, working in small shops. So this meant that Editors were, were tradespeople who not only assembled content, you know, wrote some of their own copy, um, but also physically did the work of printing the newspaper. Um, and they would do this along with other work in their shop, uh, job printing, which is where they actually would have made most of their money, um, mm -hmm. and other forms of non-market um, patronage, like printing contracts for the government or, or jobs given at the behest of political parties. Um, and this is, so this is a great story. That just to put a pin on that, that's one of the ways yeah. um, uh, that certainly Franklin made money because he had the Pennsylvania and New Jersey contracts. And uh, right. that's right. an exactly. interesting way. That's how printers become very involved in politics and yes. how uh, it's such a there's I think there's a, a link between newspapers, the eventual link between newspapers and political parties seems to me to really come from those printing contracts. Yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it is. It is. It, these are people who survived on on patronage. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so, you know, Greeley, Greeley's story is, is unexceptional in that he went into journalism, um, you know, along these lines. He, 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 he got into it by way of the print trade. Um, he was apprenticed to, a, to, apprenticed to a printer as a teenager in this tiny, tiny village in Vermont. Um, he worked there for a few years before bouncing out, bouncing around a little bit, um, showing up in, in New York City in 1831. Um, he was 20 at the time. Um, he worked as a journeyman printer in different shops there before setting up on his own and, set, and establishing um, this literary weekly called The New Yorker, not that New Yorker, not the, the later New Yorker that was much more famous, um, but a literary weekly called The New Yorker uh, in 1834. Um, now, what, what is different for Greeley um, and what was different about this moment is that he arrived in New York City just as this incredible... Um, explosion of print and publications uh, began. So Greeley, yeah, you, you have a great description of that. I mean, it's a fantastic time to be in the news business. <laughs> um, yes. Could you describe some of those things, like the blanket sheets? What uh, these yeah. are? This, the jargon is is, is fantastic. <laughs> blanket sheets, news yeah. schooners. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So so basically, you know, the New York newspaper scene when Greeley arrives is in the midst of this of dramatic change. Uh, yeah. You know, the United States had always been notable for its volume of printed publication, um, but there were limits on this. There wasn't much of a popular market based press. Newspapers, as we said, were either subsidized through the patronage of political parties or they survived by uh, essentially 
publishing um, business news for the business or merchant class in these high-priced, large-format newspapers, hence the, hence the blanket sheets. Because they actually were as large as they, because they were enormous too, right? I mean, because yeah, precisely because they were they were physically enormous. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, there's another class of publication that's kind of growing in the 1820s related to reform movements, things like temperance, anti-slavery, evangelical groups. Um, but these again are largely dependent on patronage or propped up by a dedicated following. Um, so you know, there's not a, a hugely a huge market for news or what we would call news, but this is beginning to change just as Greeley um, is showing up in, in New York in the early 1830s. Uh, New York, of course, is a growing center of business and commerce, so information is starting to become uh, something of a commodity. Um, and even these relatively staid merchant newspapers, these blanket sheets, are competing with one another to gain the latest news. And that's where you start to get, you know, the news schooners and the semaphore poles um, and all these different things trying to get uh, the latest information uh, from Europe in as soon as possible. So the, the news schooners, I should say, are, are little are boats that go out beyond yes. New York Harbor and meet ships coming in from Europe to get the Precisely. news before anyone else yeah. yes. from, from yes. those ships. Yeah. Yes, and so so these people so right at, in 1831 we've got Benjamin Day, James James Gordon Bennett, yeah. and the sort of the creation of the cheap daily. Could you explain yeah. that? Yeah, so that's where well that's where the real change comes from is these is mm -hmm. these cheap newspapers beginning with Benjamin Day's New York Sun, um, which which uh, launches in 1833, um, and sort of perfected with James Gordon Bennett's New York Herald, which uh, which he starts in 1835. These are small format daily newspapers, um, and they start to capture the life of the city um, for everybody else, not just for, not just for merchants wanting to know kind of what's happening um, on the docks um, and in distant business, move, uh, business news, but, uh, you know, information about what's happening in the city, real local coverage, it's especially gleaned from um, the kind of underbelly of urban life. So fires, murders, crimes, calamity. Um, and they become hugely popular in, in the process. Now, how much? How much? Is it, how big were they? How much did they sell for? Uh, a penny. I mean, they're 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 famously the the penny. This is the penny press. The penny okay. the penny daily newspapers. Um, so yeah, they're they're hugely innovative. Like they they strike us now. If you read them now, they strike you as as highly sensational and wouldn't really conform to what we would what we would think of as news. Um, but they're really important in creating. Um, kind of a popular market for news and, and yeah. Newspaper. Well, the New York Sun began with a was it its first week or first month with the, the moon hoax, where the described astronomers having discovered life on the moon and the nature yeah, of the civilization. Yeah, the, yeah. Yes, the moon hoax. Um, yeah, I think that maybe eighteen thirty four. Okay, um, like much late, later then. Yeah, yeah, um, but but a, a good example of 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 the kind of um, fun that that these editors had. Um, in, in, these, in these newspapers. So as you say, Greeley has actually two publications before he finally found the Tribune. Uh, the New Yorker you mentioned, uh, and then the mm -hmm. Log Cabin. Could you describe um, mm -hmm. sort of what's his developing approach or what was the Log Cabin um, and how did that sort of catapult him to the next phase of his career? Yeah, well, the, the log cabin is is, and there's another another small newspaper that he worked on, also called the Jeffersonian, and okay. this was the height of of Greeley's time as a 
um, as a kind of party editor, a Whig party editor. The Jeffersonian and the Log Cabin were um, were were campaign newspapers. Uh, the Jeffersonian was was in 1838, William Henry Seward's campaign for um, New York governor. The Tribune, I mean, excuse me, the, the Log Cabin was was 1840, um, which was uh, which was William Henry Harrison's uh, presidential campaign. Um, so those were that's that's Greeley, the political editor, and that was really um, something he turned to because that was where he could he could actually make money. Um, mm -hmm. The New Yorker. Uh, was was more of his his sort of passion project in which he really began to develop his his theory of journalism in response to this explosion of of the popular press that um, that's happening all around him in New York City. Um, you know, on on the one hand, Greeley recognizes the Im immense potential of all this cheap print, um, but on the other, he worries that it's not really doing what he thinks of as the real work of journalism. You know, for him, the real work of journalism is, is not giving them stories about fires and murders um, and, and hoaxes and things like that. Um, it's, it's about elevating, educating, and unifying people. Um, and so newspapers should provide real information in a sober, reasoned format so that people can learn, grow, develop, exercise sound political judgment, uh, you know, form the bonds of community and ultimately kind of improve and unify the society as a whole. So what, at the Tribune, he puts together an incredible lineup of, well, writers, editors, and also he has a, a, his companion, yeah. the actual publisher. Could you describe that? I mean, it's really extraordinary. He, he, he seems most extraordinary in the, in the people that he's able to attract and put together into a team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, in addition to being, I think, a great talent himself as an editor. Uh, Greeley was also a great assembler of talent. Um, uh, and as you say, some really remarkable people um, go through the offices of Greeley's newspapers, you know, from important intellectual figures like Margaret Fuller, George Ripley, Bayard Taylor. Um, you know, there are important people in the history of journalism, like Henry Jarvis Raymond, who would go on to become a, a great rival of, of, of Greeley's as the founder of the New York Times. Um, Charles, Charles A. Dana would go on to be the, the editor of, of the New York Sun. Uh, Karl Marx famously filed some dispatches to the Tribune as a, foral, uh, as a foreign correspondent. Um, and so, you know, so the Tribune really is a remarkable space. Um, beyond Greeley's own work, uh, it, it's also full of, of, of these, these incredible voices of the day. Mm -hmm. So what was his theory of intelligence? Because this is really important um, for his subsequent career, correct? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. In, intelligence, again, is, is this idea that the, the purpose of journalism um, is not to entertain. Uh, the purpose of journalism is to, is to inform, um, instruct, and ultimately, uh, and ultimately educate. Uh, and, and if you can do this, um, you, you, can, you can potentially um, unite the community in a way that has not been, uh, it has not been before. Now, there's another wrinkle in this that we should mention, um, which is the growth of radical abolitionism, you know, a mm -hmm. movement that is, is very much rooted in and driven by all this cheap print that's out there. Um, and, you know, so this is another thing that, that Greeley worries about beyond the, um, beyond the kind of sensational style of these, of these cheap newspapers. 
um, Greeley says that you know abolitionists um, are not handling the explosive subject of, of slavery um, as delicately, as cautiously, as moderately as they should. Um, if you do that, he says that you're you're going to you're going to threaten this this community that can be built through through print and journalism. Hmm. So he describes himself at one point um, giving a, describing a lecture he gave in Albany, a rollicking performance. You write of and he says, "quote of the ultra school, transcendental, Grammite, teetotal, with a sprinkling yeah. of abolition." Now the abolition we know, but what's the? Right. Let me go through that ultra school. What's what's that? Um, I think just just sort of very much steeped in the kind of in the kind of um, uh, reform movements that are that are afoot at, at the moment. Okay. Um, Transcendental, yeah. Emersonian. What what, what does yeah, that yeah, mean? Yeah, absolutely. For Emersonian. He's he's very much um, he, he's he's very much a fan of of that kind of literary movement um, and uh, and and sees himself as if not on the same level as 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 an Emerson. Um, as as a kind of popularizer of some of those some of those ideas, the the, the confusing one maybe might be Gramite. What's a Gramite? Yeah, well, Greeley was a Gramite, uh, and and Gramism was it was a dietary movement that became popular um, among uh, certain kind of young men in in cities like like New York. Um, that was that was all about kind of um, self regulation. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, limiting one's sexual urges, um, having a very uh, having a very um, a very cautious vegetarian diet, drinking drinking water, um, and especially uh, eating bread that was that was prepared in a certain way so that it would be that would be purer for the body. And that's how we get the graham cracker, which we yes. now put together yeah. with chocolate and marshmallows. So like, I don't yes. know. What <laughs> yes, I don't think that was part. That's not part of the plan. No, that was not part of ben Graham's plan. I think he'd be a little yes. disturbed by that. Teetotal, of course, we know. He later noted that his newspaper was anti-slavery, anti-war, anti-rum, anti-tobacco, anti-seduction, anti-grog shops, brothels, gambling houses, mm-hmm. in addition to several other heresies. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a reform. It's a this publication is about reform and activating the intelligence of the population for yeah. reforms of all kinds. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, He's an associationist. Could you explain what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, he this is this is a uh, a kind of variation of Fourierite socialism that uh, a guy named Albert Brisbane tries to bring to the United States, um, and the idea is that uh, that there that, that there are going to be these communities of people um, who are sharing in. Um, in 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 the labor of of the community, they were called phalanxes, um, and and Greeley uh, Greeley is is very much a promoter of of this this vision of of association, um, and and teams up with Brisbane to try to get the word out uh, for, for 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 association and, and to build these associationist communities. So Greeley is uh, among his many heresies. This is sort of. Um... This mm-hmm. curious case of so this curious uh, type of socialism. Yes, okay. yes, which which kind of um, fits into his his kind of broader vision of of strong communities um, and mm-hmm. strong harmonious communities that you can kind of resolve the problems of society um, uh, 
through through this this association this plan um, uh, and that this can be a model for the society as a whole so this this gets uh, takes us right to think to then his he's looking for a community that spans the nation that that is yes. then what his nationalism is his his nationalism is a a community that unites the nation yes um, what's the genesis of it what's it, all these yeah. things well, I think like like a lot of Americans in in the 19th century, um, Creeley really understood the American nation in kind of providential world historical terms. You know, the idea mm-hmm. that that America was destined to stand as a model of liberty and self government for the rest of the world to to follow and emulate. But um, there are these internal problems. 40, 50, 60 years after the American Revolution, there are these ways in which na- American nationalism feels incomplete or, or not fully realized. It's, it's not the kind of organic idea or experience that it is for European nations. It's beset by regional differences and sectional tensions over slavery that keep cropping up, keep, keep on cropping up. Um, and so in the world that Greeley grows up in, there are ways in which American nationalism is oriented around making the nation whole. And this is certainly true of, of, uh, of what I would say are the two most important sources of his nationalism. First, um, print and communication, which is, again, oriented around the project of nation building in the early republic. Um, uh, and these are ideas that, that Greeley really absorbs through his own consumption of a ton of material um, that is that is kind of part of this nation building project uh, that he's that he's reading as a young person, um, and then the second source of Greeley's nationalism, I think, really lies in the Whig Party or the ethos of the Whig Party um, mm-hmm. that exists even before it's institutionalized. That that Whig emphasis on collective destiny, uh, social harmony, both bolstered by individual morality, all of that really resonates with Greeley and helps form his his political vision of of American nationalism. So there's. Um... There's always the, the, the strain of, of Whiggism that goes way back that will be united by better internal improvements, um, yes. canals, then eventually railroads will bring us together, yes. um, t- the telegraph. Uh, but for him, it's also diet, exercise, um, <laughs> economic. I mean, I'm, 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 it's kind of a little funny, but that's, it's all part of the program. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, also, it's a lot of it's what you read also. Um, yeah, oh, that, and that's, what you read. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yet... He, and yet, paradoxically, this drive for a nationalism and for national mm-hmm. reform and for union, um, mm-hmm. as you say, quote, plays a critical role in a larger reimagining of the nation in explicitly sectional terms. Um, yeah. And then again, you say he had become a sectional oracle rather, uh, oracle rather than a national one. Could you explain this paradox? Yeah, well, well in the 1850s, um, you know, which is which is when Greeley re- really kind of reaches the height of his powers. Um, he ends up doing exactly what he always wanted to do. He ends up creating a political community that's organized around a clear and coherent set of ideas. Um, he also becomes a hugely influential representative figure or symbol of that community. Uh, it's just that the community to help, that he helps to create is not a national one, but but a northern sectional one, and he kind mm-hmm. of helps to solidify the idea of the North as a thing, as an identity that is opposed to the South. Um, And as I say toward the end of the chapter, um, this powerful, visible symbol of the North, Greeley himself, um, also helps to solidify white Southerners' image 
image, images of the North and the particular threat that the North poses to, to their region. Um, so, you know, he, he really helps to kind of harden these sectional identities um, and to create a, a kind of understanding of national politics as a struggle between, between sections. Hmm. He said, you write that he quickly succeeded, this is really in 1848 to in the 1850s, mm-hmm. quickly succeeded in creating a consensus around the idea that he was an exceptional nuisance. Uh, he has those who follow him as an oracle, but there are plenty of people, sort of the Whig yeah. party that he left, uh, God knows in the South, who see him as a at yeah. best as a nuisance? Um, right. How is this? Uh, is that just because they disagree with him, or is it? Is it? it but it, eventually, it's his allies who also feel that way about him. Yeah. Well, yeah. Greeley is is a is a nuisance to many. He is a nuisance to all at some time or another. Um, I think some of it's rooted in Greeley's own personality. Um, in particular, I think he had a certain kind of sanctimony and self importance that he carried around. Uh, and this is a this is a source of a lot of mockery that comes his way, uh, particularly in the press uh, from his great rival James Gordon Bennett of the, of the New York Herald. Um, but you know, a lot of it also relates to the moment um, of of high stakes political change, um, the unsettled nature of of political uh, of political parties at this moment, um, the growing power of the press and and Greeley's power or perceived power that that goes with that. Um, you know, and so Greeley begins as a Whig Party journalist, but he has just enough of an independent streak to be a not entirely reliable one. Um, and so, you know, he's constantly frustrating people in his own political camp um, to say nothing of his political opponents who already dislike him. Uh, and this dynamic continues um, even as he, you know, as he becomes a, a Republican journalist. Uh, he still is not, he's still independent enough that he's not entirely reliable. Um, and there's there, there's a great deal of distrust that goes along with that independence in the sense that he has um, an incredible amount of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's a there's a telling moment when he's in Congress. Um, uh, the, the Tribune very, includes very uh, briefly. Very briefly, <clears throat> I should say Sorry? he was he was in con- he was in Congress very briefly. Yes. Um, yes. He, but, so, uh, yeah. Very brief, uh, at the end of 1848, beginning of 1849, he kind of serves out the end of somebody else's term. Um, And while he's there, the Tribune uh, includes a a kind of critical note on a representative from Illinois uh, who gets up on the floor and basically says, this is no fair. This guy is in Congress, and yet he has this newspaper behind him that's able to talk more directly to my own constituents than I am. Um, and so, you know, these dynamics only get magnified as, as the party landscape gets gets unsettled um, in, in the 1850s. So Greeley, uh, nonetheless, uh, and this is, I think, the very powerful and useful part of your book, he doesn't see himself as erratic. He sees himself as following a North Star. Um, and, and in some ways, he's right. He's always heading in the same direction, this idea of national unity. It's just yeah. that everyone else, everyone else is weaving and bobbing around him. Um, yes, that, although uh, he does it, a lot of bobbing and weaving himself uh, when it comes to the Civil War. Um, no, he does, and let's let's talk about it. He goes through these violent, what seems to be violent seesawings 
Um, He begins the secession crisis after Lincoln's election. He's basically, he's saying, let them go in peace. Let the Southern states go in peace. Yeah. Then it's only show your strength in the the South return. Then at some Mm -hmm. point, I think it's right before Fort Sumter, it's don't threaten force. Then after Fort Mm -hmm. Sumter, it's speaking of slavery will confuse the matter. Then Mm -hmm. before, after the fall of Fort Sumter, sometime in what, June, it's the nation's war cry. Mm -hmm. And then there's, he... After Bull Run, he goes at well. You tell the story. This because it's very confusing and <laughs> it's and confused. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it, it could give you a, a case of whiplash uh, by the end by the end of the chapter on the Civil War um, because he's he swings so wildly. Um, you know, at some moments he seems to be on the radical vanguard of the Republican Party, um, and others he's flirting with crackpot ideas for for peace on on limited terms that seem to go against um, just about everything that he that you would think that he that he stands for. Um, now you kind of got us up to this moment in the summer of of eighteen sixty one right. when Greeley's Tribune is um, is calling for. Um, calling for Lincoln um, to to um, marshal the Union Army to go out and just destroy um, the Confederate the Confederate Army and to kind of essentially conquer the Confederacy. Um, this ends up being an incredibly embarrassing thing for him because it seems like Greeley and the Tribune have have kind of rushed um, the Union Army into action. Um, uh, with the with the debacle at Bull Run in July of 1861, you know, Greeley tumbles into a bout of madness in which he basically tells Lincoln to give up. Um, mm-hmm. He tells Lincoln to say that you know um, we need to make peace with the rebels on their terms because this is this is a total disaster. Mm-hmm. But then you know a few weeks later he comes to from this madness and he spends the next year championing the idea that the war has to end slavery. Um, you know, culminating in his his famous letter to to Lincoln. Um, in August of 1862, the prayer of the 20 millions in which he demands that Lincoln take more decisive action on emancipation. I have to say that um, it's quite, he writes this letter July 29th, um, stamped midnight, mm-hmm. and burdens um, himself. And this is my seventh sleepless night, yours too, doubtless. You are not yeah. considered a great man, and I am a hopelessly broken one that goes on in this vein. I, mm-hmm. I've never been convinced of Lincoln's personal greatness as a human being. Uh, more than by the fact that he put that letter away for what two three years and didn't show it to anybody i can't imagine any other american president washington would have used it against him um (laughs) everyone any other american president i think in 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 history would have have done something with it to like undermine a real thorn in their side or a a, a very weak and unhelpful ally but yeah absolutely yeah yeah um so it does he is this one of his, uh, this seems to be a, a, a does, he has this sort of manic depression pattern in his life. Is that right? I mean, just personally, psychologically? Yeah, there are, there are moments where he is, um, where he has these bouts of, of what he describes as brain fever, um, mm-hmm. where he seems to kind of, he seems to kind of lose it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and this is, this is probably the most, the most striking example until, until the end of his life, um, uh, yeah. where he's, he's, I mean, this that letter that you that you quote from is 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 really really wild. Yeah, yeah. Um, he and yet he starts writing the history of the Civil War in what year? Um, so he starts <laughs> writing. Um, he starts. He gets the assignment to write 
the history of the Civil War um, in 1863, um, and he starts working on it um, uh, in August of 1863, and actually comes out with his first volume um, of his history of the Civil War um, in in the spring of 1864. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the meantime, um, he's gone through the Prayer of Twenty Millions. Uh, he then has the what he sees. I, I think he. Maybe he died thinking this, is that he had been the responsible for Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, um, and then comes Chancellorsville, uh, and then he goes back. Right, he's uh, once again despairing of the hopes of the Union, and then of course yeah. by the spring of yeah, then by the spring of eighteen sixty four he he revives after the Vicksburg, uh, but then with the spring of eighteen sixty four he's back into depression again because now it looks like uh, the Union's army is going to lose in Virginia. Um, and the grant will just be stopped. So this never really, and, and before you know it, uh, in the summer, he's trying to get Lincoln replaced, right? I mean, as a, yeah, so, as a so that's, a, that's kind of early in 1864. Um, okay, he's, he, he, he kind of tacks over to this, to this movement uh, among some Republicans, mostly more radical Republicans, to, to replace Lincoln um, on, on the, um, on the, as, as the Republican nominee um, for, for president in 1864. Um, but yeah, this is, this is after he, um, yeah, he, he kind of plays a, plays a central role in making this case for emancipation and trying to link the war effort to, um, to emancipation, um, through 1862. Uh, Greeley is, is celebrated, um, on January 1st, 1863 as, as kind of one of the mm-hmm. critical people in, um, and bringing about the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and yet, no sooner does that happen than mm-hmm. in, uh, early, in 18, early in 1863, um, he's begun to despair of the possibility of ever winning the war. Um, and he starts floating these crazy ideas for negotiating peace, first with the help right. of uh, a neutral foreign power. Um, he then signals his willingness even to compromise on emancipation to some degree. Um, uh, and yeah, this is, this is just one of the many, many swings, um, that he, that he goes through. And then there's, uh, and then he engages in sort of personal peace negotiations, correct? I mean, in Niagara Falls of yes. all places, um, yes. Which yes. Lincoln has knowledge of this and sort of, as it were, permits him, quote unquote, yes. uh, thinking, thinking that nothing will come of it. I guess if Horace Greeley is one of the negotiators, um, yes. It's, it is. Yes. It, well, yeah. So, so Lincoln, so, so Lincoln kind of sends him out there almost to be embarrassed, and that's that's basically exactly what what happens because Lincoln knows that nothing's really going to going to come of this. Uh, Greeley is saying, you know, there there are these guys who are who are sitting there and they're they're ready to talk about peace. You know, we should really engage them, and and Lincoln says that's a great idea. I know just the person to go and do that. Um, <laughs> why don't you go and do it? Uh, it ends up being a terrible terrible embarrassment for him and. Um, after that particular incident, uh, that's when that's when Lincoln says that um, Greeley is an old shoe, good for nothing now, whatever he has been. You say at the beginning of the chapter um, that Greeley's framework for understanding the conflict could mm-hmm. never con- contain its unruly contours. Greeley's yeah. most unaccountable reversals thus came when the war did not conform to the schemes he laid out for it. So what were the his framework and what were his schemes for the war that kept yeah. frustrating him? Yeah, I th- well, I think I think that Greeley's kind of crazy course through the war um, 
makes makes a lot more sense when you when you see that Greeley really thought that the Civil War was going to be this kind of crucible of American nationhood. That this was going to be the moment when the problems of American nationhood could and absolutely would be resolved. Um, so all of these seemingly unaccountable moves are rooted in the certainty that what has ha what is happening has to be the ultimate making of the nation. So, you know, just to kind of run through it, secession is actually good because it's going to expose these crazy fire eaters while emboldening the true unionists in the South. Well, that didn't happen right away. So now we just need to go to war and embarrass the fire, eater, fire eaters in a few battles. Well, that doesn't quite work. So now we just need to get rid of slavery. But getting rid of slavery seems to be tearing the union apart um, and making the possibility of reunion harder. Um, so maybe we should find a way to soften that a little bit. No, you know, we really do need to get rid of slavery. The problem is just that Lincoln's not the right guy to thread this needle of eliminating slavery and bringing the nation you know, to its deliverance um, uh, and so on. In other words, you know, in all these moments, all these reversals turn on Greeley's belief that what has to happen here, what has to come out of this is, is some truer version of, of, of the United States. Mm -hmm. This is, um, there's a great... Uh, Support. This is a very much related to our conversation in episode 132 with Elizabeth Farron about her book, Armies of Deliverance. Greeley is uh, one of the great progenitors of this idea of delivering the Southern yeoman, the Southern people, yes. from slaveocracy, which, which is over mm -hmm. not just the enslaved people, but also over the poor whites of the South, and that yeah. they need to be delivered. Um, they might right. not know it, but they will, but we can deliver right. them and they will eventually, they will, they have a sort of, they have a false consciousness, um, mm -hmm. and they can be delivered from their false consciousness. And it's, it's extraordinary how he takes that all the way into reconstruction, mm -hmm. that, that, that idea. He never, never gives up that idea. No, no. I mean, even as there's, even as there is, um, you know, there, there, there are oceans of evidence, uh, against yeah. this idea. Um, uh, he, he absolutely never gives up on the idea that, that there are these people in the South, these, these yeoman, um, uh, these yeoman, white yeoman farmers of the South who are just waiting to be kind of awakened. If we can just talk to them the right way, um, if we can embarrass, um, if we can isolate uh, the, the, the kind of fire eaters, if we can isolate the kind of planter aristocracy of the South, they can come to the fore, and then we'll be able to then we'll be able to move forward. Then we will have this nation that we've been waiting for. And the, the mystical the mystical union of the American nation uh, it really is a sort of mystical body. It's like the church, mm -hmm. the Christian mm -hmm. church. It will be restored um, yes. in some transcendent way. Um, yes, uh, it's and you, you, now you might say this sounds like Lincoln talking about the last best hope on earth, but it's not like Lincoln at all. Uh, Lincoln has an idea of the American Republic. Um, I would say not the American nation in the way that Greeley does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, Lincoln goes to Lincoln does go to um, does kind of move in this direction over the course of the war. He he, he starts to talk um, more about um, more in terms of nation than than union and republic uh, as, as mm. the war goes on. But but I think you're right. I think that I think that Greeley. Um, you know, has this 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 sense, this really I think misguided sense that there is this power to the kind of mystical existence of of the nation itself, and that people um, that people just need to be people just need to be kind of awakened to that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what the press is for. That's what the New York Tribune is yes. for: is yes. preaching that awakening. Yes. Um, 
and this explains then a lot of Reconstruction Greeley and 1872 mm-hmm. Greeley. Mm-hmm. Um, in this way, it, it makes sense that he would support Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson is a representative of all of his preconceived ideology. Um, a poor Southern white who right. is against the slaveocracy, against the fire eaters. I mean, why wouldn't he support him? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, that this is this this gets to this gets to the complexity of Greeley um, as as a Republican. As, you know, as somebody mm-hmm. who's still a Republican. Um, you know, he does not support Johnson. Um, uh, you know, I, I think ultimately he comes to support himself uh, and the idea that he is the person who should be. Um, yeah. Who should be trying to trying to make all this make all this uh, to make this kind of mystical union or reunion happen? Mm-hmm. And he persists also believing that national reconciliation is can be done at no great cost or compromise, which is uh, everyone else would say was unrealistic. Yes, yes. Well, he thinks that that there's this kind of magical, um, you know, this this magical equation of. Uh, of of amnesty and suffrage, um, the idea that that uh, that every that, that all, all former Confederates should be given amnesty, um, and that the freed people um, should be given should be given citizenship and suffrage, and that somewhere in that um, you you can move forward, and this this kind of great harmonization um, is is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it, he has half of Johnson's plan, at least uh, a complete amnesty, but also at the same time, mm-hmm. a, yes. a sort of a radical Republican idea of complete amnesty. So therefore, he satisfies absolutely no one. Yeah. Yeah. He's offen- yeah. As you say, he's offensive. By 1872, he is offensive to all. Um, yes. Or, or why, to most, anyway. Yeah, to most. Why does he run for president in 1872? I mean, he's not, is he, he's not a well man at the time, is he? Um. No, I mean he's he's definitely been working hard through through his life. Um, uh, I think that he, but but I think that he really thinks that he is the person for this moment. Um, uh-huh. He first of all, there are these newspapers that start talking about Greeley as a uh, as an alternative to Grant in 1872, um, and that that goes back to to around 1870 that people start talking about kind of floating Greeley's name. Um, he goes on this tour of the South. Uh, in 1870, um, where he gives a series of speeches that that he then uh, that he then publishes, um, uh, and there he kind of gets this idea: Hey, these people are these people are responding to me, um, uh, and you know maybe I am I really am this this figure um, who has this kind of unique status to to heal all of these all of these divisions. So what's the uh, question uh, about Grant to which Horace Greeley is the answer? What's the, why Mm -hmm. does Greeley and why do his eventual supporters, like as Carl Schurz among others, um, why do they see Greeley? What's what's wrong with Grant that has to be gotten rid of? Well, the funny thing is, is that Greeley really isn't the answer um, uh, for people like Carl Schurz and and others who, who, who are become a part of this. Um, this liberal Republican movement that that takes shape in order to replace Grant, um, uh, they end up with Greeley basically by accident. They don't they don't want Greeley. Um, they they want somebody who is going to pursue a kind of reconciliationist policy when it comes to Reconstruction, um, but they want somebody who is going to promote civil service reform, uh, free trade. 
um, all of these different things that, that really, when it comes to free trade, really is definitely not on board with. Um, uh, you know, he's, he has kind of tepid support for civil service reform. Um, they basically get kind of, um, they, they, Greeley kind of steals their nomination because of this perception of his, of his celebrity, um, yeah. that, that he can be the figure at the top of their, at the top of their ticket. Even dear old John Grief Whittier, you, you write, he says to a, a friend that Greeley is, is great for the nomination because he's one of the most popular men in the United States. Right. He's a man on whom his countrymen, irrespective of politics, can be proud. He's a celebrity. He can win the presidency, in other words. Yeah, absolutely. Greeley's, then this, this is the key point, that Greeley's celebrity as a kind of, as a kind of national figure becomes its own argument for, uh, for, for his candidacy. And, um, you know, for, for, pe- for people like Shorts, who are really committed to, the, to this liberal Republican movement, um, this is a total disaster because Greeley really isn't um, really isn't a strong representative of what they what they believe in. Yeah, and they, they have you have got another great quote from a, another liberal Republican. I have always regarded Greeley as an awkward, ill-bred bore, and though a sort of inspired idiot, neither a scholar, statesman, or a gentleman. I wouldn't give Grant's little finger for a congressional district full of him. Yet I want him elected. <laughs> yeah. It's not the yeah. it's not the last time someone said that in American politics either. Yes. So not yes. to make too many contemporary references, but there it is. Yes. Um, so he loses, and mm-hmm. his wife dies right before the election. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's clear by that time it's going to be a disaster, um, and he has a complete breakdown. It's really um, it has to be one of the most tragic um, elections in American history in terms of personal consequences for one of the um, contestants. Yes, um, and. Dies yes. by the end of the month. Um, let's back up a little bit. Um, how did you mm-hmm. investigate this life that is, um, as that seems to be led entirely in public? Um, yeah, you you're not that interested in the inner Greeley. Am I am I wrong about that? I mean, this is a this is definitely sort of the outside story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this this gets at a question I had to reflect on. I think a great deal over the life of this project, which is. You know what kind of book is this? What kind of life is this? And um, to some extent, the sources dictated an answer that pointed more toward a public Greeley. Um, and, and to some extent, Greeley himself pointed me in that in that direction. Mm-hmm. So, so first, I mean, the, the, the sources aren't overwhelm uh, are overwhelmingly public, and really, unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's no hugely extensive collection of Greeley manuscripts. There, there, there are two you know, modestly sized collections at the New York Public Library and then another at the Library of Congress. Um, but a lot of those collections are, are comprised of incoming correspondence. Um, there's not a whole lot that's terribly, terribly revealing um, uh, when it comes to Greeley's private life. You certainly get a picture of him as a person who um, has a, a, very, a very difficult home life, you get a picture of him that's deeply embedded in, in kind of male political friendships, um, but you just don't you don't get a, a great sense of Greeley the private man, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And then I think I also what I what I found most interesting about Greeley also pointed me to a consideration of the public person, um, and not just the person, but also the image and, and the celebrity. Uh, and so, as I say in the introduction, this is not just a story of a person. It's also a story of a personage, and I was sort of interest, interested in tracing those two things together, um, which I think is, is really important for understanding him at certain moments. 
you know, particularly um, with the presidential run uh, and also in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, striking things about the book is how well it's written. Uh, you have a lovely way with the parallelisms. Uh, I have to mm-hmm. say, I was I I, I, I marked a lot of them. So, yeah, I got to copy that. Um, that's a nice. That's a good style. Where did you, where do you pick up your style? I mean, did you do this on purpose? I mean, have you been working on it? Do you what do you read? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Um, so, well, outside of history, I, I read um, I read a lot of short fiction, uh, uh-huh. and and I'm really in awe of the economy of short fiction. That that you know that ability that masters of short fiction have to say so much with so little. Uh, and I think this is a, a really nice corrective if you've been reading a lot of 19th century material where the mode <laughs> is to say a lot with a lot, uh, yeah. or even a little with a lot. Um, yeah. It's especially the case with newspapers where writers may have literally been writing to fill space. Well, um, it yeah, so happens you get paid by the word. Yeah, right. Now, obviously this is, this is you know, it's a very different kind of writing, but I, I think I tried to be very conscious of economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's see, I, you know, I also read a lot of good nonfiction when I can, lots of New Yorker articles. Um, you know, among historians, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big Jill Lepore fan. Um, you know, I think that one tries to copy her style at one's peril, but uh, you know, I really love the sense of voice that comes through in her work and her writing, and, and I think I wanted this to have, have a voice. So how, um, how did you draft this? How many times did you go through drafts? Did you did you draft it chapter by chapter and go back and redraft, or did you write the whole thing and then sort of work at it as a as a unity? No, I did. I I, I worked very much chapter by chapter, um, mm-hmm. and basically uh, I would create big, unruly, you know, wild word documents with pages and pages, um, you know, many far too many pages, um, you know, things that were. Too long, too too quote heavy, um, and then just cut and cut and cut and cut, um, mm-hmm. and try to and try to try to make it um, kind of lean and mean as much as possible. And yet it doesn't read as I mean some history books do read as separate essays put together uh, under mm-hmm. uh, under the guise of chapters, and yet there is a unity to the book. Um, so you must have established that somehow. Yeah, well, I think it took. I mean, I think it took shape as just as I worked through the whole thing, and then I did have to go back and and um, kind of refit some things as as the as the broader vision took shape. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you do notes? Oh, this is I, I have to. I'm asking for myself. Yeah. I don't care if anyone else is listening. Um, how do you keep track of all of them? Um, do you use something yeah. like Zotero or you know EndNote? Yeah. Oh, or, I, or gosh, you... I love I love Zotero. Zotero was oh, yeah. an absolute. Godsend for, it's for the best capturing thing ever. I will be yeah. happy to advertise for them free for the rest of my life. Yeah, on this podcast. yeah. Well, especially for this project where so much of the material um, came from um, online databases like ProQuest Historical Newspapers and America's Historical Newspapers, where it's really mm-hmm. easy to capture that material um, initially um, mm-hmm. and and to kind of take notes. Uh, I take notes through through Zotero, mm-hmm. um, and then I would create basically big word files um, mm-hmm. that were filled with, with, you know, notes and quotes um, and then kind of move from there into, um, into writing, um, writing that was, as I said, too long, uh, too quote heavy, and then just cut and cut and cut. Yeah. That, that's kind of the problem when you identify there, when you've got all those great quotes that you can sort of hoover up in Zotero, then the tendency is exactly. to like have a lot of them. And the, and I strive struggle with that. How to do, 
be more economical with the quotes in the first draft so that you don't end up having a third right. or fourth draft trying, trying to eliminate that. Um, right, right. You, uh, you remember the, um, it doesn't exist anymore because it doesn't really need to, but do you remember the Zagat Guide for Restaurants? Yes, yeah. Those 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 restaurant reviews were basically just quotes, kind of patched yes, together, exactly. and, and that's always the worry is that you're going to create a kind of z- <laughs> writing that is basically a Zagat guide review, uh, yeah. just quotes kind of strung together. Okay. Well, let's let's finish up with some of the broader themes yeah. uh, to the book. Um, it seems to me that you might have some, you might have a certain perspective on the role of the press or the media in the American Republic. Um, there's yeah. almost a, there's almost a book struggling uh, another w- book that you know that's struggling that's suggesting itself to me as I read this mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Uh, in this sort of moment of much navel gazing and uh, scratching of head by journalists about what's happening to their industry. Well, things have always mm-hmm. been happening to their industry. I mean, it's never yeah. really stopped. We're yeah. At the end of we're just at another inflection point where things have changed. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. gone. They had a good run for sixty years, but now it's about to change again. It changed in eighteen thirty-one. It changed, you know, it's changed a lot. Um, yeah. But there is, in a way, I don't think that exists in in Britain, which I know best. I can't speak to France. There's a a certain role or self imagined role of the press in American life, and as you said earlier, it goes all the way back. I mean, it goes back to at least. Uh, to Washington, who wanted uh, newspapers to be shipped uh, without postage. Um, this was mm-hmm. essential for his conception of an American republic mm-hmm. is to have a, mm-hmm. an informed, an informing press. It has to do with, you know, ridiculous rates of American literacy because of all the people who want to read the Bible. Um, yeah. But yeah. what sort of larger lessons do you did you sort of teach yourself uh, about yeah. the press in the American republic? Yeah. Well, I think you kind of got to it there. Um, um, in, in, in the first part of your, your, your question, which is just that revolutions in media and communication are really, really unsettling um, and, and come with profound reorderings and reorientations of, of politics. Uh, you know, that certainly happened in the United States in um, the middle of the 19th century with the, with the explosion of the popular press. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly happened in the United States in the first two decades of the, of the 21st century with um, obviously the internet and, mm-hmm. um, and social media and the way that, uh, the way that those forces have, have driven, um, or have really reshaped, um, the working of politics. Mm-hmm. And yet the, uh, Greeley's idea of, of the press being an intelligence is not foreign to contemporary, I mean, to Columbia journalism review, um, mm-hmm. in a way, which I think, I don't know, it, it must strike it. British journalists is a bit odd. Um, it must strike maybe French journalists is a bit odd. I don't know about the French, yeah. perhaps the British. Um, but this is a long this is a long story in American intellectual life amongst the, yeah. amongst the press. Yeah. Well, you know, I, th- I think I think another thing. I mean, I can't speak to um, France and Britain too well, but uh, you know, I think I think another another kind of contemporary point here we can make is that. You know, we, we've also returned to a world where media personalities can drive politics and, per, and, yeah. and political perception in ways that they did in the 19th century. And so, you know, I think we've really moved back to a personalized media landscape where people can really 
select their vision, their version of events mm-hmm. by selecting mm-hmm. you know certain news outlets and certain. Um, uh, I'll use the loan, loathsome word influencers uh, and personalities, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and that's something that's that's not new either. No, it's not. And also, it's it's clear. I I had always thought just that the nineteenth century is very simply about party press, uh, but it's much more than mm-hmm. that. Um, Greeley obviously was, you know, often a party of one and the Tribune was a, a very yes. weird political party. Um, yes. but you're right. They're influencers. Um, yes. What Greeley certainly, he didn't use the phrase, but thought of himself as a public intellectual. Um, what does this, there's a lesson sort of, I think I, I what I got is a, a cautionary tale of the, the, the limitations of, of public intellectuals. Uh, and the, and even in the project of intelligence, uh, is that was that an intended lesson, or or, or am I misreading it? Um, no, I don't. I don't think that. Um, I think that I was thinking more about um, about Greeley as as a kind of a sui generis character. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I necessarily was thinking thinking quite in in, in those terms. Um, you know, I think that that, and I also think that that. As I said, when we were talking about the argument of the book earlier, mm-hmm. that um, that this is also about the the limits of of the nation that he's that he's operating in. Yeah. Um, and and so you know what he's trying to do is is I think fundamentally impossible. Why? Um, well, just just that you know American nationalism. Um, is a very is a very weird species of American nationalism. Um, you know, I think going back to the, the, the early Republic, you have these kind of robust expressions of American nationalism, um, but that's but expressions that sit on such weak foundations. Um, and you know, this was you know particularly particularly true um, in the middle of the nineteenth century when you have this huge explosion over over, sl- over slavery. Um, and you know, Greeley was trying to do something that was that was simply not possible. My guest today has been James M. Lundberg. He's the author of Horace Greeley: Print, Politics, and the Failure of American Nationhood. Jake, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.